you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Romans chapter number 8. We're going to continue where we left off last week. We talked last week about how, how God will end not just our suffering, but all suffering. There will be a point in time where suffering will end, and, and the Bible talks a lot about the suffering of today. It talks a lot about how that we're going to go through sufferings on this earth. Now, many of those sufferings we bring on ourselves. We make bad choices, we make bad decisions, and we end up in that, that cyclone, we end up in that hole that we can't get out of. Jesus Christ can lift you out of that. But even when he lifts you out of that, that doesn't end the sufferings on this earth. We live in a lost, dying, decaying world that's full of suffering. And as Christians, we need to understand that, we need to acknowledge that, because we need to understand that if we're not in the middle of suffering right now, it's just around the corner. And we need to be ready for it. Now the difference, the huge difference for Christians as opposed to the world is when we go through suffering, we have a helper. We have a comforter. We have one who will never leave us and will never forsake us. So we don't have to go through those things alone. So we talked a lot about how God wants in those sufferings. And, and this week we're going to look at some assurances that he gives us. He gives us several assurances in this passage about what he just talked about. He didn't have to do this. It's enough for God just to say, this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to do. But here he gives us detailed instructions as to how that's going to happen. And, and he gives us instructions, more importantly, on, on why it's going to happen. So we don't have to live just by blind faith. We can have faith that's actually backed up by God's word. By the way, we're never called to live by blind faith. When you've got 66 books written by God, it's hard to say that our faith is blind. We have a great deal of assurance, a great deal. Somebody was wanting to argue with me this week about the existence of God. I said something about God, and he said, well, which God? I said, well, the only God. I told him, I said, there can, he said, well, there's, there's thousands of gods. I said, well, you're a smart guy. How many sovereign gods can we possibly have? What is a sovereign God is a God that's in control of everything. How many can be in control of everything? Well, just one. That's the God I'm talking about. Because all those other gods are either demonic gods or they're gods made up. Most of them are made up in the minds of men to try and explain something that this Bible already explains. Or to give them a God that they can follow that doesn't require what this Bible requires. And so it's that God, the God of creation the God of Abraham, the God of David, the God that sent his only begotten son to this world to die so that I could be saved. When I talk about God, that's the God I'm talking about, the only real God, that God. And that God wants us to understand that suffering is going to end. He gives us that hope, that hope not based upon nothingness, but that hope based upon him and upon his word that he has never lied to us. You know, much of the Bible was prophecy when it was written. It's prophecy that's been fulfilled today. Things that hadn't happened yet, particularly concerning the birth and, and, the, and the life and the resurrection, or the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was all talked about extensively in the Old Testament. Hundreds and hundreds of years before it ever happened. Today we live with a Bible that's mostly completed. 
there's still some prophecy that has left, is left to come. This is part of that. That time when all suffering is going to end. And we can look back at the fulfilled prophecies that God kept his word here and here and here, which means he will keep his word right here. So far, we've looked through the book of, of Romans through the first seven and a half chapters. I kind of made a little outline here of things that we've talked about. And in Romans 1 through, through uh, most of t- uh, 3, it was man's need to get right with God because he's under the condemnation of the wrath of God. We have a, a part in all this. And then starting in Romans 3 through Romans 5, he, it's, it's man needs a right relationship with God, not just to, to get right with him one time, but we need to continue that right relationship with God. We see our, our struggle to be free from sin and how sin corrupts and ultimately leads to death in Romans chapter 6. And then we see where man needs to be freed from the bondage of the law, spiritual legalism. For the law, it enslaves, it accuses, it condemns, it strikes hopelessness with the heart, but has no solution for our sin. And then in chapter 8, we're moving to a new summit. Those who love God, those who are called by him, will be freed from the bondages and corruption of this life when we're ushered into glory. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Romans chapter 8, verse number 28. Probably one of the more familiar uh, voices, verses in this passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. How many of you heard that verse before? How many of you have heard the first half of that verse before? Because normally people just say the first half, right? All things will work together for good. Hey, Brother Dean, don't you know all things are going to work together for good? You just keep giving your money. Okay, brother? And we see that. We see that, that we, we stop there, but that's not where that verse stops, does it? That verse has some conditions. And not to try and trick us into anything, but, but it, it's very specific. Because not everything works together for good. Sometimes bad things work together for bad things, but this says all things work together for good to them that what? Love God. Right? That means most people in this world, things aren't going to work out together for good. And when we tell them it's going to work out together for good for them, that whatever they're going through is is, is God's going to use that for good, we're lying to those people. They don't love God. And then it goes on, not just those that love God, but those that are called according to his purpose. So we see some, some clarifiers in there that we usually just skip over. By the way, the word work together, it means a, a continual action. Some of these things that work together for good, some, sometimes those things work together very, very quickly. Sometimes those things aren't going to work together for good until we receive glory. It's an ongoing process. The word good means for our ultimate good. And sometimes our ultimate good is different than the good that, that we want or the good we think we want. How many times do children ask for things that's not good for them? And some parents give them things that the kids think are good and they're not good, and then the child gets hurt, the child gets spoiled, it causes bad in their lives. These are things that are for our ultimate 
good. But God only looks after the affairs of the person who loves them. This is a guarantee only for those that love him. Only those who are called according to his purpose. The believer's deliverance is purposed by God. We're going to look more into that in just a moment. We know that all things work together for, for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. We see that through that loving God and being called to his, his, his um, purpose, we see that there's, there's something that, that takes place in our behavior. If we love God, we will obey God. If we love God, then we're called according to his purpose into holiness and righteousness. There are many people that proclaim Christ, but their life doesn't proclaim it. Their words proclaim Christ, but their, their life proclaims something completely different. These aren't people that love God. These are people that talk about loving God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. That's our calling from God. If we love God, if we claim to love God, then we should be loving becoming holy. At least that, that process of becoming holy, that process of moving from where we are to getting better every day. By the way, that's what the term Christian means. Christian doesn't mean we're saved. Christian doesn't mean we're going to heaven. What Christian means is we, we are, it's a journey. We're becoming more and more like Christ. You see, we're born again, but being born again doesn't make us a Christian. We're born again. That's, that's, God, that's using Jesus Christ for our salvation. But then we have to make him the Lord of our life, and that's where we become Christians. It literally means an ongoing behavior that, that makes us more and more like Christ. It's a journey we won't fulfill here on this earth. As long as we have that sin nature, we're living in this sinful world, we'll never ultimately get there. So we don't have to be exactly like Christ to be a Christian. It's that journey, that desire in our hearts that we want to be like him. And we move closer to him every day. Sometimes it's big jumps. And sometimes it's little jumps. But we're on that journey to become more and more like Christ. Some of us have been on that journey for a long time. Some of us have been on that journey for a very short period of time. It doesn't matter where you are on that path. What matters is, is that your daily focus is how can I become more like Christ? That should be our basic prayer every day. Pray for forgiveness and we say, God, how can I be more like Christ? That implies we understand who Christ was, which is revealed to us in his word. As we study the word, we look for ways that we can become more and more like him. Let's look at verse number 29. We got a long ways to go today, and I spent too much time on verse 28. Did everybody pack lunch? Hold on to your seats. We're going to get, we're going to get it here. In. Verse number 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also, pre, also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is a passage that, that a lot of people are, uncon, are uncomfortable preaching because it's a passage that's been misused and misapplied by many of the, the cults out there, many groups that claim to be Christians that, that are lacking what this isn't talking about is, this isn't talking about the predestination, meaning that, that God has already determined who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. Never, never misunderstand his all-knowingness 
with him controlling everything. Just because he knows something is going to happen doesn't mean he caused it to happen. Okay? We are predestined. And actually, in all, it's God's will. He tells us in his Bible, it's God's will that none should perish. That we should all go to heaven. That we should all be saved. But we know that doesn't happen. That doesn't mean that God's not sovereign. It simply means that God allows us to make choices. In the simplest of terms, you know, you look back to the Garden of Eden. He gave them a choice. He really only gave them one choice. Well, two choices, one, one subject. He said, don't eat of this tree. You can do whatever else you want. Nothing else was sinful then. Because the only thing they were told not to do, not to eat of that tree. And we know the story. They ate of that tree. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Sin has fallen to every man because of that sin. Because of that, sin has gone from generation to generation. And we can't, don't rest on that too much because even if it wasn't with that sin, we've all made our own choices to sin. So does that mean God, God caused Eve to eat that? No. He gives us all a choice. Well, then why would he give us a choice? In one way, to look at this and try to understand this, what helped me understand this, is we are all products of our fathers. Our earthly father or our spiritual father. You probably look a little bit like your father. Not exactly. But you probably look, people probably look and say, yeah, I can see the resemblance. Or maybe your mother. You say, oh, I can see the resemblance there. Because we're their children. And the same thing happens with our heavenly father. We begin to take on the characteristics of our Heavenly Father. And one of those characteristics of our Heavenly Father is our desire to be loved. We love and we want to be loved back. If you've ever been in a relationship where you loved and you weren't loved back, you know how hurtful that is. That's the relationship God has with most of the world, by the way. He loves and they don't love him back. And so we want that relationship, and he desires that relationship where we love him, and he loves us back. But the only way love can truly manifest itself is we have to have the ability, we have to have the choice not to love him. If we can't choose not to love him, then our love is empty. And when we look for a mate... When we look for a, a wife or we look for a husband, we want that person that's going to love us. Not just because they love us, but we love them because we just do. And I hope you have that kind of relationship. Too many relationships are in this country are built upon, well, I'll do my part if you do your part. And it's a contract between two people instead of a covenant with God. And so when one person doesn't do their part, the other person says, well, if he's not going to do his part, I'm not going to do my part. Or if she's not going to do her part, I'm not going to, if she's not faithful, I'm not going to be faithful. And then they throw the entire relationship away. They throw the entire marriage away. That's not what our covenant with God is. When I entered into a marriage with my wife, I made the commitment I was going to love her unconditionally. I am extremely blessed. Because she, thankfully, made that same commitment to God for me. The other day, I'm looking at her and I'm like, I don't know why you're still here. Not that I wanted her to leave, but I'm thinking, I would not put up with me. And she does it with such grace. 
I just look at her sometimes and I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I know I'm good looking, but good looks only carry you so far in this world. I've gotten in a bad habit. This is a horrible thing to do, but it just, I started scaring her. Like when I walk in the room, first thing in the morning, and she's in there, she'll be cooking or something, and I'll go real loud and say, good morning! And, ah, the spatula goes up in the air, and everything else happens, and then she gets mad, and I laugh. And uh, I don't know why she stays with me. Except, you know why? She loves me. Because nobody else would put up with that. If I did that at McDonald's, walked in the back and started scaring people, they wouldn't fix me breakfast anymore. They'd send me on my way. So this is the love. And, and this predestination, it's not talking about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It's talking about that he predestined us to be the, look what the verse says. He predestines us to be conformed to the image of his son. Those that believe we are predestined to become like Christ. Why? So that he can be the first fruits of many brethren. It's not about who goes to heaven. It's not about who goes to hell. That's an individual choice. How evil would God have to be to create Harmon? And no matter what Harmon does, no matter how much he loves God, no matter how much he believes God, no matter, no matter, you know, he gives his life entirely to God for God to say, but I didn't choose you. I'm going to cast you into hell. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's not God. That's an evil being. And our God is not evil. Our God is love. We will be conformed to his image. Verse number 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So we see this, this uh, uh, progression here. Where first off, we're, we're called. He's called. Bible's very clear, like I already told you. His will is that all, so everybody is called. But understand, our salvation isn't of ourselves. This is why when we, we teach uh, people to go out and, and soul win, we, we're very careful not to, not to try and convince or trick people to be saved. Because I used to sell used cars when I was a teenager. I wasn't very good at it then, but I think I could be pretty good at it now because I think I could probably talk them into just about anything, Right? If you're a good salesman, you can talk people into buying stuff. You ever, you ever walked off the lot and thought, why did I buy that? Or walked out of a store and thought, I can't afford this. Why did I just sign those papers? It's because you were, you were convinced by a, a very good or shady salesperson to do something. That's not what salvation's about. It's not about me tricking you. It's not about me guilting you. It's not about me uh, coercing you. You have to be called. Fortunately, he calls all of us. And so I tell people when they go out and they're soul winning and they're talking to people, if, it, if the Holy Spirit's not in it, just walk away. Because it's not the right time. For whatever reason that the Holy Spirit's in it, share away. So we have to be called. And then we, we are justified. Notice that this is past tense. The justified justification's already taken place. And then we're glorified. We're glorified. We're given that new glorification. This is a past tense in, in the, the way this is written as well. The, the glorification of the believer is already accomplished, even though it won't be completely fulfilled until we're in heaven. Verse number 31. 
What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. God has already acted for the believer, not against us. He acts for us. God is, our God is not a, an old man sitting on a cloud waiting to throw lightning bolts at us. Our God is sitting on the edge of his seat eagerly waiting and desiring to help us, to, to manifest himself in our life. We just have to let him. Many of these are, are assurances that we have, but this point is very important because God himself is the assurance. God himself is the assurance that believers will be set free from suffering. If God can be for us, who can be against us? It's kind of a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing can be against us. Nothing can stand against us if he stands with us. Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also make intercession for us. This is the fifth assurance of of our deliverance. how, How direct and forceful this is. Who is he that condemneth? In other words, nobody can condemn us because Christ has saved us. Christ has died for us. We cannot be condemned. This earth cannot condemn us. Only Christ can condemn us. But instead he saved us. He's the only one that has the authority. He's the only one that has the power. But the glorious good news is Christ does not condemn us. On the contrary, the very opposite is true. He does wonderful things for us, not against us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now he gives us a pretty interesting list here. And I challenge you to name something that's not on this list. What can separate us? Tribulation? You know what tribulation is? That's when we're undergoing strife. That's when we're having trials or temptations or, or just general sufferings could all fall under that, that, that category. Distress, suffering anguish or trouble, strain, agony. You ever felt like you, had, you didn't know which way to go, which way to turn? That's distress. It's not strong enough to separate you from the love of God. Persecution. We're seeing more and more persecution in this world against Christians than ever before. To be abused, to be mocked. We see videos of people wearing shirts that says Jesus saved and they're, they're told either change your shirt or get out of the mall. We see persecutions. What about famine? To have no food, to be starving, have no way to secure food. We don't, we don't face a lot of this in the United States. Except Dean. Dean thinks he's starving every day. His belt would argue. Nakedness, to be stripped of all clothing, is not in all earthly comforts. It's not just our clothing, it's everything. 
left, left to the wild. Peril. To be exposed to the most severe risks. Confronted with the most terrible dangers to one's body, mind, soul, for our family, for, for others. To be placed in that position. And then the sword. Literally means to face death because of Christ. And he says none of these things can separate us. Can you imagine being a person that's experiencing all of these things? What would his thoughts be? He would think that God has forsaken him, but these things, none of these things mean that God has forsaken him. God is assured that our suffering is going to end in spite of all these things. We're going to face some, if not all, of these things in our lives. And God is still on the throne. God is still in control, and his promises are still just as valid as the first time he made them. He will end the suffering. We may feel that way sometimes. The person's going through it may feel like God has forsaken them, but God is declaring loudly here that he still loves them. We will suffer. We will be counted as sheep to the slaughter. But none of that means that God doesn't love us. Because you notice what it says? No matter the circumstances, we are still more than conquerors. We are still children of the King. We still have a Christ who loves us. I often joke, but it's not really a joke. What's the worst the world can do to me? Send me to heaven? Right? If the sword comes and takes off my head, I close my eyes here and open them up in the presence of the Lord. And they think that's a bad day for me? I mean, I can understand it being a bad day for you guys. I'm going to be gone. My poor wife, I don't know what she's going to do without me. But for me, it's going to be a glorious victory. Because I step out of all the suffering in this world and step into his presence. Death for the Christian is nothing but a victory. Nothing but a victory. We are more than conquerors, it says in verse 37. Look, verse number 38, we're going to get finished up. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor debt, nor any creature, any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I won't go through that entire list like I did the other one. But do you see what he, he's given every single example? And then just in case in our vain imaginations we try to come up with something else, he says, and no other creature. In other words, nothing else that's created. Not just animals or creatures, not just us. Everything that's created is a creature. So nothing that's out in outer space. Nothing that's under the seas. Nothing that's hiding under our bed or in our closet. Can ever hurt us. All it can do. Or it can never separate us from God. All it can do is cause some affliction, cause some pain, but it hasn't had the power to separate us from God. Nothing. And by the way, you're a creature. You are a created being. You don't have the ability to separate yourself from God's love. You can get angry at God. You can shake your fist at God like Habakkuk did. You can challenge God and say, God, your, your judgments are wrong like the prophet did. But God will never stop loving you. How awesome is that? That we serve a God 
that was willing not just to send his son to die for us, not just to save us, but a God that will never turn his back on you. No matter how far you run away, you can try and run to the other side of the world like Jonah did. But after three days in the belly of the well or the belly of the fish, Jonah repented. And you know what happened when he was repented? He was restored. See, we can run away from God. Most of us have been through periods of our life where we've run away from God and we've gotten so far away from God that we can't even hear his voice anymore. And we think, we're away from him and he doesn't love me anymore. And he's one prayer away. He's one prayer away restoring us. Are you running from God this morning? Do you know somebody that's running from God this morning? One prayer will restore you. This is awesome. The promises given to believers in the Bible is an amazing thing. But these are promises that are for believers. Most of the world doesn't fall into this category. You see, because it's not just a belief of God or a belief of Jesus Christ. It's a belief in. Most of the world has a belief of Jesus Christ, particularly here in the United States. They know him here. They deny him here. They try to, to quench him here. They've got that knowledge. Matter of fact, we're all born with that knowledge. There's many things that we, our, our initial programming when we're born is pretty extensive. You don't have to teach a baby what to do when the baby's hungry or cold or dirty. The baby communicates that pretty well. The baby doesn't have to figure that part out. The baby doesn't have to figure out how to eat. Although he's never eaten that way ever before, in the womb he ate completely differently. Once he comes out, he knows how to eat. Some of you struggle with that. I can tell looking around the room, some of us excelled. But we learn, we know how to eat, right? So, and one of the things that we're downloaded with, we have a knowledge of God. Not a complete knowledge, not an, not an extensive knowledge, but we know that we are connected to something higher. We know that we're eternal. And we deny it, and we fight it, and we push it down. But we have that knowledge here. But what saves us is when we get the knowledge here. 18 inches. Or big as my head is, 20 inches. But it's close. But it's the difference between life and death. It's the difference between heaven and hell. Now, I'm guessing since you're here, you all have this. But do you all have this? Not just a belief of, but a belief in Jesus Christ. I can give you an example, my presidential example. Do not raise your hands for this. This is amongst you. Keep this to yourselves. How many of you believe that Barack Obama was our president at some point in time? If I had you raise your hands, you'd probably all say, yeah, he was president at the time. How many of you believe that Donald Trump was our president at one time? We'd probably all get hands up now. But I said, you have a, so that means everybody has a belief of both of those men. But do you believe in both of those men? We'd be hard-pressed to find, because they were so far to, to the right and to the left, we'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that, that believed in both of them. Do you see the difference? Belief of, 
belief in. A belief in takes faith. A belief in takes submission. A belief in Jesus Christ takes repentance. It's not just enough to know that he was real, that he existed. It's not even enough to know that he was the son of God. We have to believe in that he existed. Believe in he is the son of God. Believe in the fact that he died for our sins and rose again the third day. Defeating sin and death for me. I believe that. I believe that here. Do you?